Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. And this is actually more of a community announcement than some sort of pre-podcast advertising role. Earlier in the month, when the coronavirus was starting to uh, gain attention in the media and in our broader community and by our politicians and leaders, um, I think I found myself, and I don't think I was alone in this, uh, starting to drift onto social media um, in a relatively, I'll say, unhealthy way. I don't tend to use Twitter um, that much. I certainly rarely tweet unless I'm just tweeting out the podcast or something. I don't really sort of involve myself in the commentary. But, you know, Twitter is an interesting social media platform for getting up-to-date information. So I found myself going on Twitter to get up-to-date information about the coronavirus and what our leaders were doing to address this both from a health perspective and also from an economic perspective but having gone on twitter and then starting to see you know thousands of people's opinions um which started to kind of you know get me a little bit irate uh coupled with the earlier announcements from our prime minister around uh addressing the problems that the virus would cause our community into the future and, and in some instances the slowness of how he was dealing with that started to really get me kind of frustrated and I was getting frustrated for a number of reasons but one in particular was that I could see what was happening like the rest of us if you read any of the international media you could see what was happening in um, in places like China in the United States and in Italy um, in those early days and I was worried that that was really going to happen here and obviously it you know it's very much a live risk for us all um, and I was concerned that our, our our national leaders weren't moving swiftly enough to deal with the health um, challenges that were would befall us if we didn't move quickly enough um, which then led me to ranting and raving on Twitter <laughs> which I never do and I had this moment I was like, oh my god Stephen I've become that person um, as an organizer I've you know we always would stress to our organisers, don't go on Twitter, don't go on Facebook. Your job is a, is a, is a field organiser. Your job is to directly communicate with people face-to-face um, and empower those people and enable leadership to um, bring about change. Uh, so I had to pull myself out of this black hole that was Twitter and go back to my organising roots, um, which then led me to say, well, I need to challenge... Clearly, I've got a lot of pent-up energy here and and uh, frustration, and I need to channel that that action into something that is motivating and it is positive. And that's when I decided to uh, do a letter drop and make reach out to all of my neighbours that live in the apartment building that I live in here in Melbourne, uh, which was a letter that basically was just introducing myself and my partner, saying hello... Um, obviously, coronavirus is a thing. We're probably getting a little bit worried about it. Um, I think it's a great opportunity for us to all reach out to each other and connect. Um, and here's a platform upon which we can do it. So I set up a WhatsApp group for everyone in our building. Here was my mobile number. Please just text me if you want to get involved in this WhatsApp group. And what we can do in the future is once, you know, in the event that we're all isolated and locked down and we can't freely move out of our homes, uh, which, is what, which is something that has befallen the good people in Italy and now in large parts of the United States and all throughout the world, uh, um, that we can share our resources and help each other. 
um, with basic things like if you're not well, someone can go, can, someone can message someone on WhatsApp and say, hey, could someone get me some medicine from the pharmacy or I can't get down to the shops or I'm out of toilet paper or does anyone have any sugar or, or even just talking to each other to break down that physical isolation um, and to look after one another um, and our mental health. So I did that uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was a great response because the majority of the people in our apartment building have signed up to our WhatsApp group and we talk regularly now and it's been really, really positive. Um, and I sort of mentioned that on social media to which then a lot of people reached out to me and said, oh, Stephen, what were the steps you went about doing that? So in the end, I created a sort of uh, starter kit. This type of work, this type of community organizing is actually called mutual aid. It's not something that I've invented. It's been around for a very, very long time. And obviously it's something that's quite useful in the scenario upon which we are all finding ourselves in now. So I created a, I just made up on the Dunn Street website, a, a page which can step you through that. So the reason why I'm just sharing this with you now is if anyone else out there wants to uh, know about how to go about doing that and some of the little tips and tricks that's useful to do like don't overreach don't try and talk to the whole bloody suburb um, just actually reach out to people who are very very near you um, if you can go to dunstreet.com.au slash neighborhood underscore network uh, neighborhood spelt the english australian way um, o-u-r so dun d-u-n-n-s-t rwet.com.au slash neighborhood underscore network um, and you'll find a starter kit there with all the information you need to do to set up your own network neighborhood and do some mutual aid and share the resources with uh, the people in your community and um, hopefully that will help you guys get play a little small part in helping you guys uh, get through what will be a reasonably long haul for us all in um, dealing with this health crisis that is um, that is making us all live in our own homes and not get out very regularly, and obviously follow all the World Health Organization and uh, uh, advice from our leaders, including the, our leader here in Victoria, Premier Daniel Andrews. You know, stay at home, wash your hands, um, reach out to your loved ones through online or on the phone, uh, go for a walk, and look after your mental health. Uh, on this week's episode, we are joined by a good friend of mine, Amit Singh, who's a former economic advisor to both the Rudd and Gillard governments, and he's been an advisor to the private sector in big tech and economics from a broader sort of policy perspective. He was also the deputy chief of staff to Bill Shorten when he was the opposition leader um, and uh, is now a senior advisor at the economic consultancy firm Alpha Beta or Alpha Beta. And... Amit is going to be on today to really drill down on the on the uh, economic impact that the coronavirus is having on the Australian economy and the global economy, and what we should expect from uh, our leaders going forward from an economic policy standpoint. Really interesting guy, um, and has got some really insightful uh, 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 thoughts on this really really complex and concerning um, uh, global pandemic so that's uh that's our mitt who's uh on today's uh episode and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on apple podcast spotify and stitcher and if you're an apple podcast user please give us a rating uh and leave a review um which we greatly appreciate and for all updates about the podcast just follow dunn street on facebook twitter instagram and linkedin so let's get to today's episode <music> 
Okay, we're taping this one on a Monday afternoon in uh, downtown Melbourne, and it's great to have on the line uh, for the first time to talk about the economic impact of this coronavirus. Amit Singh, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I actually, you and I were talking about off air before about um, I set up this podcast um, from day one to not just be a typical sort of politics uh, centre-left podcast uh, in the in the traditional sort of journalist side of things because I'm not a journalist um, I, and I wanted to create a podcast in which I got, I got people on that not, are not necessarily household names but are definitely people that uh, know stuff and can create uh, interesting conversations about things that are going on right now in the, in our world. Um, but one of the challenges of that is the people that do know stuff that aren't politicians tend to be political staff and they can't go on the shows, beca- on the podcast, because of the nature of their job. They actually work for a politician, so that they can't do that. Now, you are an ex-staffer, so you hit that sweet spot. And I'm, I <laughs> reeled you in before if you ever go back into the world of politics again <laughs> as an advisor. So this is a sweet window and a, an opportune time because of what is happening around the globe and certainly how it's impacting economically here in Australia. So it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank what- you. Um, it's uh, it's a really. I thought we'd seen. I thought um, I sort of worked during the last crisis, and I thought I'd seen the crisis of my lifetime. But this one is this one is this one is um, enormous um, and and complex and difficult and um, and touches all of us in ways in which the other one didn't. As and and they, and the other one was really bad. Yeah, we're going to talk a bit about that uh, in, in a moment. Now, I've actually got a couple of questions for you on that, just to sort of give some context to the listeners about how this compares to previous economic uh, disasters. If I can't think of it, I can't give it another name, but I can't sugarcoat it. Um, but before we do that, I just want to sort of set the scene for yourself. When did you start to realise, what was that moment that dawned on you when you went, oh, coronavirus is something that we probably should be a little bit worried about, not just from a health perspective, but also the impact it was going to have on the Australian economy? So I, I remember working, so I worked in politics, um, I worked in politics around the time that you had the sort of avian bird flu, um, which was a much smaller but much more aggressive um, version of one of these kind of flus. And I remember at the time people talking about how they were worried about sort of a recurrence of SARS because SARS was a coronavirus or, or was sort of the original coronavirus. And so I sort of forgot how how significant those events were. And it really didn't dawn on me, I think, I think until really, you know, probably now what seems, you know, what seems like a lifetime ago it was probably only about six weeks ago, mm. probably, you know, I mean, where you sort of were looking around the world and you're looking at the kind of nature of the changes that were taking place in other economies. I think we all sort of thought that the Chinese economy was going to be impacted by it, but we didn't really see that, you know, migrate to other cities in China. And so we were sort of, um, so from an economics point of view, I think you sort of knew that this was a problem, but then, then when it sort of started taking off in kind of the back end of February, then I think it was really clear that this was going to be a pretty, pretty significant event and a pretty significant event in a way in which like um, economics was not catered to suit, you know, it was not catered to sort of deal with. Yeah. So there's the kind of the health side of it that seemed like it was getting more attention from the things you read, but from an economics point of view, it really became apparent probably in about mid-February, I think. So do you think the economic impact of it dawned on you before the health impact? Um, 
I, so, so I think the problem with being the problem with being a policy advisor in economics is that you very quickly stop trying to be stop trying to pretend to be an expert on things that you really don't know anything about. And I think on the sort of um, I think I was worried about the health impact first, but I think I didn't really understand the magnitude of the health impact. And I think when I really appreciated the magnitude of the of the economic impact, then 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 understanding the sort of the nature of the health challenge really really dawned uh, dawned on you. I think the problem is that the law of large numbers meant that um, you know as soon as this thing sort of as soon as this thing started traveling around the world, this thing was going to get really big. And I think um, yeah, uh, I think uh, when you when you then start thinking about that in the context of the uncertainty of models, so economists are very used to the uncertainty of their models, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and like, let's face it, economists get stuff wrong all the time. People expect economists to get things wrong. Um, and I think that I think when you sort of then think about the health crisis, and I remember talking to a friend about it, and he sort of said, oh, at the low end, we think it's about a 20% infection rate. At the high end, it's a 60% infection rate. Like anything, we're used to percentage growth of 3 4 5%, right? Like when you're looking at things where they're growing at that on a daily, like, and that's over a year, when they're growing at that on a daily basis and probably even more, like those things can get can get um, pretty big very quickly. So yeah, um, I, I would say I would say I was more worried about the I was more worried about the like the health impact initially. But then then I think the thing that's over time like got me to really really worry about like a lot of things was the economic impact. Can think, turning your mind back to the global financial crisis. Uh, in your in your time as a as an economic advisor during the, the Rudd government, um, how fundamentally is this different to the GFC, and how fundamentally different do you need as a as a government, whether you're Australia or overseas? How do you deal or reconcile with trying to uh, um, protect or support the Australian economy? So. This is this is completely different. This is like this is like someone saying to uh, someone saying that you're playing a game and you're sort of playing like it's it's sort of saying that you know rugby league is the same as AFL. Like you know they they're great games, but one is very you know I mean one is one is two dimensional and one is three dimensional. Like it's a totally different different concept, right? Um, this is a much more difficult um, crisis. Like it's, it, um, its character is very different. The nature of the challenges that it poses on, on the economy are far more significant. The, um, the, the global financial crisis was, um, but, but, but there's also sort of like the strange part about it is it also has like kind of, in a sense, definitive ways in which you can solve for it. Right. So what are the challenges in the global financial crisis? So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about why this is worse in a second, but let me tell you about why I think this might be, might be okay relative to that, right? So um, uh, the, there's no question that the impact on the economy is going to be much more significant. But the global financial crisis had a risk of contagion that this one, where this risk of contagion is slightly different. So um, in a sense, the definitive day in which all of this changes is when you can have a mass-produced vaccine, right? Um, and... Um, and when you don't have to um, deal with the kind of concepts of like infection management that you've got at the moment. Um, but um, so, so you sort of know the kind of end point of the crisis in a sense, right? Now, there's going to be a huge amount of economic dislocation, a huge amount of um, impact in the meantime, but you sort of know that. In a, 
in the global financial crisis, it was unknown, like when when that kind of contagion would end. It was unknown how bad this debt was across the whole nature of things. So that's the sort of probably the kind of maybe silver lining. But now let me tell you about why it's all really, really bad compared to that one, right? Um, so if you think about it, right, like in the global financial crisis, U.S. unemployment um, U.S. unemployment claims peaked at about um, peaked at about six hundred thousand. Um, last week, U.S. unemployment claims were six million. Mm-hmm. Right, like this is this is uh, this is um, this is um, this is like um, a ten times worse kind of um, situation on, on U.S. employment. Like someone was projecting that U.S. unemployment would get close to twenty percent. That's depression level mm-hmm. unemployment. Um, uh, the half of a fifth of the French public, a fifth of French private sector was basically let go last week. That's about four million workers. You know, Spain, eight hundred thousand people became unemployed in Spain last week. That's like 10 seasons of Collingwood members basically becoming unemployed, right? Like it's um it's pretty it's pretty intense the kind of impact that 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 this is having. And it's going to be intense because of the nature of where it sort of fell in the cycle, right? Like um <clears throat> it sort of falls in many of these <clears throat> many of the northern hemisphere economies which are still the kind of um, uh, which are still the main drivers of growth of the global economy falls in as part of the part of the time of the year when they expected to have some degree of increased activity, which they won't which they won't get. Um, so, so I think I think the, the this crisis is you know is, is significantly harder. It's also harder because it has multiple phases to it, um, and those phases mean that the policy responses can't rely on what we used to what 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 we used to think about you know so typically the whole thing of post war keynesian economics is effectively that you in a sense use stimulus or you use investment in the economy to basically kickstart it um in fact that can't work when the economy is actually all at home mm. uh, the nature of sort of dealing with the kind of the supply side supply side challenges are much much more difficult than than they had been in the past. I think there's also challenges in how you deal with it because the institutions are not, for various reasons, the institutions that we've got are wounded. They're wounded by, you know, 20 years of polarizing kind of politics, you know, across across most of the liberal democracies. They're wounded by um, a you know, I mean a public service that's been basically you know I mean attacked for various number of reasons they've been wounded by the fact that we've lost trust in experts you know so that there's actually a whole bunch of different like conditions that make this a lot more difficult to think about or to get through um, and it's also difficult because everybody thinks about um, is that we have to move away from a conventional wisdom on economic crises and to think about this as three three distinct phases that are very very different in terms of their effect you know there's the first phase which is essentially the response which is basically why we're all at home yeah. Um, then there's the kind of recovery, um, which um, which is a very sort of complex kind of um, question. And then there's the sort of repositioning of like, what does the new economy look like, which would be very different to what it was. The left-right um, political dichotomy in this country and in certain aspects in certain other countries globally um, feels somewhat discombobulated at the moment. Um, you know, as you said before, you know, in the past we have been so used to traditional. Uh, conservative type governments, big on uh, big on small governments, but very much focused on small government policy settings. And all of a sudden, we've got Scott Morrison, you know, just dumping a whopping one hundred and ninety six billion dollars to keep the Australian economy from falling into a sort of a coronavirus black hole. Um, 
you know, I'm just sort of thinking about, and maybe uh, let's talk about it now. Like, if you're a social democratic party and you've got a conservative government starting to adopt this big spending, big government kind of setting, what do you, you know? If you're elbow right now, what do you, what do you do? I think I think um, uh, I was looking I was looking the other day looking at basically the proportions of GDP that countries are spending. And it's not just, um, I think the whole, uh, like that measure is also an interesting measure because this government um, has basically taken the highest possible number you could take as their public number. So the government goes around telling people that they're spending, that there's basically 16.4% of fiscal and monetary support in the economy, which I think is kind of extraordinary because they basically don't need to take the monetary figure. Actually, if you just take the fiscal figure, it's about 12%, it's about 115 So it's kind of interesting that the government is trying to pr- publicly tell everyone that they are they are putting a lot into the economy, right? Like, so like leave aside the fact that they're actually doing it. They're even, you know, as a positioning exercise, picking the largest possible figure that they can get. Um, which is fine, but it's interesting looking at the levels of support that you get in other places, you know, so like the US has got 10%, US is about doing about 10%, Germany is about just over 14, Spain's doing just just over 15, the UK is just under 15, you know, um, like you've got all these places that are, you know, that have effectively bought the kind of consensus around small government um, and have got like enormous spending in the economy, yeah, um, um, enormous like... Um, I think if you're a kind of social democratic, um, that that poses a lot of questions. If you're a social democratic um, party, you're a social democratic kind of uh, you, you approach on social democratic because it really questions the kind of role of the government in the economy, right? And there's a sort of easy bias in which you can sort of fall into this trap of saying, okay, we should think about the kind of you know you mentioned the three steps that I talked about before, where you fall back into this kind of step of thinking about, okay, how do we how do we think about um, uh, how do we think about, like, say, for example, we've got a wage subsidy. How do we think about that wage subsidy in the context of what it means for the larger economy? But actually, the role of government out of this crisis will be very different right, to what it is at the moment. You know, in phase one, the role of government is basically to hold it up. But in phase two, government has to evolve and change its, and change the nature in which, and the way in which it's actually helping to guide and shape that economy. Um, as a policy person, I think the most depressing thing is, an, is a policy person that doesn't have a plan. Mm. And I think the thing we've got to think about is what's our plan for the role of government in the kind of new economy. And I think that is not a reversion back to, you know, a reversion back to sort of old school, you know, government as a, you know, I mean, government as a lead actor. It's, a, it's government as sort of fundamentally, in my view, four different things. It's either the funder of things in the economy. It's either an investor in the economy where it's using basically its its, its resources to move things. Um, it's either an underwriter of risk, which is ma- mainly the way in which it will play into the roles or role or the way in which it will support individuals through this, right? Or it's either as a direct employer or producer of things, you know? And, and somewhere along those, somewhere along that line is, is effectively a kind of comprehensive view of what we think about the economy, what we think about the ind- industries in the economy, how do we think about employment, how do we think about the nature of the various degrees of sort of social change that we want to achieve um, in that context. So honestly, I think I think at the moment you have to think about this phase as one distinct period and, and think about the next phase and the one after that as the ones where the kind of gains for gains for your social democratic kind of goals is going to is going to be achieved how do you rate uh, morrison's performance uh throughout this uh crisis C- compared to or think back to over the summer during the 
the bushfire crisis, he was heavily criticised by wide sections of the media and the general public about being very wooden and stubborn and uh, slow to move. And what he did, it wasn't, it didn't seem that it was enough, or or that he he, he that he really kind of understood the the impact that it was having on communities. Um, and I felt like at the start of this, uh, when the coronavirus outbreak, outbreak first started to really kind of take hold in uh, the Australian mindset, that I th- that old, good old ScoMo, Scotty from marketing, uh, was back again. And he was just going to play it out the same way. Um, it felt like he... Uh, that there was a there was a conflict or a a, a a rivalry in his mind between dealing with the health crisis and dealing with the economic crisis, um, and I said to a couple of mates of mine, you know, Scott Morrison here has an opportunity to completely remake himself into a leader that will be perceived in the great legacy of Australian political leaders. Um, if he gets this right. But right now, I feel like he's completely fucking it up. But so much has happened so quickly. Like, as you said before, like two weeks feels like half a year right now. Um, and that was before that sort of, um, that, that, that big Sunday night uh, national cabinet meeting. And I think over the weekend, a lot of the premiers, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, are starting to do a bit, a lot of media pressuring him into um, making a decision. Um, how have you seen how he's played out over, over the course of up until today from an economic standpoint, has he done the right things? Has he moved quickly? If you were in government right now, if you were an economic advisor to the prime minister, what would you have done differently? So I think I think there's a luxury in being a Monday morning kind of quarterback in all of these things, right? And I think I think we need to. Um, uh, there, there's a sort of risk in kind of um, thinking to yourself, oh, we would have done these things sooner. We would have done, you know, we would have acted earlier. I think one thing that is interesting. If I sort of make an observation about the kind of the past, is I think what what is interesting is is there isn't really great information on trying to be able to appreciate whether like like how much of a problem this is in the first place. So if you ask, you know, go back to your original question, like when did you think this thing was really that bad and how bad was it? I think that there's probably maybe a kind of collective misapprehension about the sort of risks risk to our to our economy and a risk to the nature and what way in which we did it. And I think that. The way in which um, it's been really interesting to watch the performances of some other leaders. You know, so if you look at the um, Prime Minister of Singapore, I think when it came out, because they had the experience of SARS, they were very, very um, clear about the set of kind of um, limitations that they would place on people's ability to move, the nature of what they expected in terms of um, um, in terms of sort of testing, the way in which you'd want to be excluded from work if you had any kind of illness. The nature of how their sort of medical system would would revert, but he was his communication was very clear at the start. You look at you know, New Zealand's reaction; I think they probably apprehended the economic challenge, perhaps a bit faster than we did. You know what I mean? And and so acted acted almost immediately. So I think I think it's sort of hard to kind of it's hard to pick it, but I would say that there's kind of feels like there's sort of two distinct phases. There was the kind of phase which was we haven't really sort of appreciated. The kind of the nature of the challenge we're sort of moving in a way in which um, is frustrating to anybody that watches politics, but anyone that's inside the machine thinks that this is incredibly wise, which is this whole idea of like let's incrementally move to the place that you want to go to, mm. and actually. 
the public, the, you know, um, having had the experience of now sitting outside of that, the public is incredibly frustrated by incremental movements, right? Like, just tell us where you want to go. Yeah. Um, so there was that, that kind Which of thing. Which is phase. funny, though, don't you think, given that we are quite a conservative bunch of people, Australians, in terms of change. We kind of fear change a little bit. But it, it was weird, certainly, getting a sense of the Australian public, like, going, just get on with it. Just lock just, me down, you know? Yeah. And you got this period where you basically got to – like, you know what I love about – one of the things I love about this period is, like, how there's all these old-world terms that have kind of made a comeback, right? So nobody used to talk about Overton windows, right? And there was a point at which we basically hit the Overton window. And it's like all of these ideas that were basically not politically acceptable all of a sudden became back on, right? Mm. And then we got this kind of, like, this kind of new national consensus where all of a sudden we were doing things that were, like, the right policy outcomes, right? Now, they may have been late, a little bit late, Right. Um, and and maybe 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 there was like you know maybe, maybe they design things and there's sort of ways in which you can kind of quibble on the edges about ways in which things should you know things should have worked you know like I think that there's probably ways in which you might think about sort of the wage subsidy as being really beneficial for a macroeconomic kind of signal for the financial markets to give stability in the economy but you question whether it really has a endpoint effect on the kind of on the high street you know I mean on the high street um, or the you know, uh, everyday small business or for, for worker in a kind of, you know, low paid, low paid work as opposed to sort of minimum wage work, you know. So so, you, so rather than sort of those kind of like if you just go to zoom out, there's a point at which we hit that where all of a sudden all these ideas became basically on. Right. Mm. And so I think that there have been kind of two distinct phases. I think um, what's been what's been really interesting is um, also seeing the kind of nature of the change of how we have approached, say, um, how we've approached experts and then the way in which we've thought about some advice. I think one of the things that's been a um, small bugbear of mine is the way in which um, we, we've sort of tried to basically use experts in a way in which it's expedient for our purposes. And politicians of all sides have done this. But really, I think at the start of this was probably the worst example of it, which was we've got all this advice. We've got all this advice. It's like, okay, but policy decisions are not informed by just one channel of advice they're informed by a collection of a whole bunch of different factors and then you make a decision that's in the interests of the public right um if you let economists decide the budget you get the 2014 budget yeah mm-hmm. right like that's not a <laughs> you, you don't let one channel decide things you have to use a range of different inputs and i think in the early part of this it was was very much framed as well we've got health advice we've got health advice and therefore we're just doing it and it's like well you know, you, you take that advice, you incorporate it with your sense of all the different factors that you're supposed to think about, and then you make a decision. And some of the states have, in a, like in the early phase, were probably doing a better job of that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of hard. To, it's kind of hard to sort of pick pick the right, um, you know, to, to know where the kind of challenge is. What I will say though is that the recovery phase, that second phase, is where policy decisions will shape a lot of outcomes, right? And um, and and in a sense, like being able to, being ready to kind of understand that challenge and to deal with it, I think will be really really important. Talk us through that. What do you think that? What does that look like? I think so. I'll say like like there's sort of three things, right? Like one is, you know, I was talking about old concepts that kind of make a comeback. One of the really old concepts, one one of, one of the concepts that we've not seen in this country for like 30 years is kind of notion of hysteresis, right? Like this. Which we're going to hear a lot about hysteresis, which you know, I mean, you know, we didn't get in the Fairfax broadsheets, but we're going to see a lot of it now, right? Which is essentially this idea that once you leave the labour market, it's really hard for you to come back to it, 
And it's really hard for you to come back to it the same position that you did. And even when we got to like, even in the late 2000s, there was a piece of treasury research that effectively showed that um, if you lost your job in the 90s recession, you basically never got back into the labor market. Even as late as the mid 2000s, when the country was booming and you know everybody was, you know everybody was relaxed and comfortable and whatever Howard was saying. I mean, like, like even in that point, there was no. Um, uh, th those people had basically been left behind. And the way it works is to think about it as like there's always something coming into an economy. And there's always something coming out. And if you fall off that, you can't go back to the start of that queue to come back in because that queue of people coming in, mm. right, is long, right? Like, and it's, it's, it's like long by a, lo by a long shot. And so, so like thinking about that, thinking about the people that have basically been dislocated from that economy and how they come in, not just as individuals, as employees, but as small business owners, as people that basically have, you know, even medium business owners, right? Like, and what do you do? What do you do about that spare capacity in the economy? I think that's going to be like an incredibly difficult thing to sort of deal with. The other thing is also that the pace of change that we're talking about. So I talked about how you had this sort of 6 million people in the kind of dull queue, well, in the unemployment queue in the U.S., over, right? Like no institution that we have is ready for that. Yeah. Um, like, like, like no existing institution, which is, which is why we've had this kind of period where a whole bunch of things that we would, you know, have previously never thought possible are now eminently possible is because we need to think about like whole ways in which we change the nature of social, you know, of, of the social safety net. Like, um, we need to move past the binary where, you know, the way in which you're classified matters to the way in which you're protected. Like, you know, everybody should be protected equally. There should be some level of support regardless of how you do it. You need to move past the kind of three payers sort of system, which we thankfully don't have too much of a problem with versus the Americans, you know what I mean? But um, the Americans or, or, or other systems, you know, and, and I think we need to start having a serious conversation about how we might evolve like the new safety net that is that is actually reflective of the way in which we work you know like so one thing we don't talk about at all is we talk like we're learning very very clearly here about the importance of sick leave right but like what about um you know what about concepts like universal family family leave i'm not talking about the income because i'll have some views of that. but 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 like you know things like you know so sick leave is important but what about caring for like older people what about caring for you know i mean kids like we've had this whole new change of the way in which we think about childcare, um, we'll have to rethink the way in which the sort of the care sector works and what that looks like. So there's a whole bunch of different things that we'll have to change. Yeah, um, uh, a whole bunch of different things that we'll have to change. It's an interesting point you make. I was just thinking about that when I was sort of trying to pull together some questions for this, and I jokingly had a question in there about uh, how it, how this, the impact of COVID nineteen will change the way in which our society works. You know, you can't unscramble. Uh, an egg in the way that what's happened so far, you know, people working from home, will our attitudes towards that be a lot better? You know, um, you know, all of a sudden homeschooling is now the cool thing, whereas years ago we always thought those kids were freaks. Um, you know, retail therapy on the high street, is, 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 are those days over? Because we're all just now shopping online. Um, you know, the way that we live our lives is going to be funnily changed. But the marketplace, like the, in terms of the job marketplace, I just find that interesting to see how that reshapes. And the point you just made before, I hadn't even considered that, that those who do drop off find it hard to get back in again. And I remember the, the recession um, during the, the, the tail end of the, the Hawke-Keating years and we hit that figure of 10% unemployed, which was, 
which was over a million people were without a job in Australia. Um, I don't know if our latest unemployment figures have come out. They yet. haven't. They haven't. That, that's one of that's one of the challenges that we've got here, is that we don't have like we'll get data over the next few weeks and we'll get a better sense of it. But one of the challenges that we've got is that um, uh, a friend of mine tells this funny story about how during the financial crisis, you know, um, uh, we'd sort of sit down like during the financial or, or various times if you've worked as an economic advisor to a senior senior politician, you'd sit down and you'd sort of say, oh, you know, the like, like we really are concerned about this sort of um, this escalating kind of crisis in the US or we're worried about this or, you know, someone, um, a friend recalls about how they sat down, um, they sat down with the Prime Minister on the day after Lehman Brothers basically collapsed and they said, we should probably get in some Treasury officials and talk about, you know, talk about like how the economy is tracking. And they walked in, they had all these sort of, you know, the, um, these, these economists and they said, oh, okay, um, they asked someone from the ABS and they said, so, so how's the economy tracking? And they said, well, in the June quarter, the economy grew by 0.3%. <laughs> and it was like, that's great, but like three months ago was an eternity. Mm. And in this crisis, like last week was an eternity, mm. right? Um, so, so the kind of quality of data is going to be, is going to be a problem. But yeah, I think you're going to get, you're going to get situations where, of, and, and of those numbers of people that, that were unemployed in that crisis, many, many, many moved into the long-term unemployed and many fell out of the labor market altogether. And that's not a great outcome if you're, you know, you were talking about sort of social Democrats and what social Democrats need to think about. I think that is not a great outcome um, for, for, for us. It's not a great outcome for um, social mobility, which is, should be the kind of governing, governing kind of, you know, I mean, optimization function of social democracy. You know, everyone will have a different view, but, um, you know, and, and, and so I think, I, I, I think that's a kind of pretty significant challenge. One of the things that's interesting is, um, uh, one of the things that that's interesting is I think it actually does the, there's a, there will be a lot of focus on the nature of the recovery. You know, is it a V or a U or an L, you know, um, all of those things kind of matter, but I think one, the one truth in all of them is that we don't go, we don't unscramble the egg, right? Which was, which was kind of your point. And, um, and I think that matters, that matters for all of the kind of realize there's an amazing Politico piece that, you know, people can kind of Google where they ask a bunch of people what they think is going to change. And it's, it's sort of really interesting what was, what some of the things that people kind of point out. But one thing that, it, what I, one thing that I kind of think a lot about is it actually changes the relationship that the big institutions in the economy have to to all of us and to each other you know so government is all of a sudden a bigger part of the economy and we talked about that before but companies are also a different player in this type of economy right so companies are no longer companies in service to their shareholders and their bondholders and that's pretty important but they're also in service to the public and the government you know, I mean in, in essence as representative of the public right like a lot of companies have been able to continue to operate in this you know, I mean, during this period, because they're nationally significant, some companies have required the support of government to even continue to exist. Some companies have, have required the support of government to be able to effectively go into hibernation mode. Yeah, um, the nature of our kind of call on big utilities and big providers of different services will change on the other side of this crisis. Yeah, and so. So those things, like like the kind of way in which companies think about their supply chains and their sort of labor practices, will change a lot. So I think I think it's um, I think yeah. So, so the relationship of companies will change. The relationship of the third sector will change. The relationship of how we think about you know care work, which has always been the largest part of the economy by far, or has been 
um, at least for our lifetimes, you and my lifetimes, right? Um, but has not get, got the kind of attention that it wants. Yeah, you know? I mean, um, I sort of have this kind of view that you know, if this is what you know, some people have used the some people have used the kind of characterization that this is war, right? I wonder whether on the day in which the vaccine comes, are we going to have a parade in the streets where? Like every you know, doctor, nurse, and like care workers, basically walking through the streets. You know, I mean, like this completely changed the game on the fact that care work has always been undervalued, that we've never really understood <laughs> what its purpose was, and maybe what we're now talking about is you know, in the way in which people wrote, you know, in the way in which people talked about, you know, talked with fascination about the greatest generation, and they talked about the sort of the world wars, and they eventually wrote it into like comics, and like, you know, we had an entire Avengers, you know, I mean, world about it, right? Like, like, then maybe, maybe that kind of thing becomes about how people do care work, right? Like, so I just think it kind of doesn't change. Like, the, you talked about, um, you talked about sort of um, the Prime Minister before, right? Like, we're all Keynesian now, but mm -hmm. like, what does that actually mean? Uh, you know, what does that actually mean into the future? And it's it's a fascinating question to think about, as much as it's sometimes a bit scary. With all of this uh, money that the government's borrowing to to you know pay for things like the wage subsidy um, and everything else to go along with it, and I'm sure there'll probably be more announcements going forward. Um, what? You know, I, like I'm not an economist by any stretch of the imagination, but I know that when I borrow money off of people, and I know that money is quite cheap to borrow at the moment, but is there what's what's going to be the long term impact of that? Because I think that a lot of people out there just sort of think, oh, well, the government can just keep on borrowing money and you know can maintain this hibernation that we're in right now, but that can't go on forever, surely. What what should we be concerned about in terms of the amount of borrowings that the government's? When, when can when does this stop? Like when do we have to draw a line in this? Uh, or can we just keep doing this? And if we do, that just does really does fundamentally change the way that we operate. <laughs> I think I think I think the one thing that is complex about this time is that everybody is doing it, right? Like, like it's not that it's not it's not a question of, you know. I think normally you sort of worry about this because your relative position is not great. I mean, your relative position versus like others that are borrowing is not, um, you know, so you don't want to end up in a situation where you are basically have a huge amount of debt versus like, you know, I mean, your other middle developed economies not having that or like advanced economies basically being where the economic cycle is on an upshot. Right? This is going to be strange because everybody's going to be quite heavily indebted, right? And and like, and there will be, you know, they will be indebted because the money exists, right? But I think there's going to be, like, this is going to be a fundamental question about how we think about economics, how we think about sort of, um, how we think about like fiscal and monetary economics, how we think about what that means for the nature of how we think about sort of borrowings and the nature of government. Um, I don't think this is at, at an end, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that there's probably another stimulus. They probably need to do another stimulus um, uh, before, like in the in the kind of response phase, even before we get to recovery, um, because because um, I think that there's probably some degree of pressure on um, there's some degree of pressure for um, businesses on fixed costs. And I think that there's some degree of pressure for businesses on, and so what I mean by that is like, if you're a business, like you've kind of got the employment part of it, which is your biggest cost, you've sort of got that handled by the kind of the wage subsidy. Mm -hmm. um, if you're, um, uh, you've kind of got a little bit of sort of protection for some of the other expenses through some of the earlier stimuluses. Um, uh, you kind of like, if you wanted to spend money, you could, but 
not like that's sort of neither here nor there. But the things you don't have really protection for is some of the big fixed costs, right? So, um, and and things like you know commercial tenancies, things like that. So you 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 are going to need to have new. Um, I, I I think I think I think they'll have to have some for, version of a new stimulus. But they're probably not in not in the kind of eye watering kind of magnitude that we've seen. Um, and I think you'll need to have stimulus in the kind of recovery phase. Yeah. Um, and um, and you'll need to have stimulus in the recovery phase. And um, uh, and maybe you can do that through um, being a bit more creative and maybe you can do that by curtailing the length or, or at least managing the length of the crisis. You know, so you know, I maybe you don't need to spend $130 billion in the end. Maybe it actually ends up coming in at a bit less than that or, or quite a bit less than that. I don't, I don't know um, on the wage subsidy. But I do, think, I do think you need another stimulus. I do think you'll need to spend more. I think that... Where does this end? Nobody really knows. Um, what happens with all of this debt? I think, um, I think the kind of conventional wisdom is if you get the kind of global economy back on the right footing, then the kind of recovery can can happen um, can happen reasonably quickly, at least at the kind of um, at the sort of top end of the like 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 at least at the headline level of the economy. You know, even though there'll be some pressures pressures underneath. But yeah, I, uh, like. Um, it, we, talk, we started this conversation by saying it's unlike any other crisis. It's because actually some of the fundamental rules of how we think about eco, you know, economics has sort of changed. One other thing that's kind of sort of interesting is um, one other thing that's interesting is that uh, Keynes himself didn't really think that you know Keynes in economics would last until this long, right? You know, like he used to talk about how everybody was like a wise man held hostage by a defunct economist. You know, I mean, um, I think you kind of um, like it's almost in a sense. We probably should have changed this. We probably should have started doing that, you know. Um, and you know, and like Jim Chalmers was probably way ahead of his time when he was talking about sort of well-being budgets and things. Um, in fact, actually, he was probably at, at the right point of that kind of cycle to think about it. But maybe we do need to have that type of conversation, like you know, and and that you know, the the debt that we will have from this is a is an issue, but it's an issue in the midst of a series of different kind of factors. The um it's been interesting to watch how, since the creation of the the national cabinet, which consists of the prime minister and the uh, all of the state premiers and the two uh, chief ministers from the two territories, uh, work together. I'm reading a piece in the Guardian on the weekend by Catherine Murphy. I don't know if you got a chance to read that. That's I did. A, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting kind of insight. Where obviously, I guess a number of those different offices have um, fed her some, you know, some decent storylines um even talking about the you know the a level of some degree of you know dialogue and conversation between a conservative federal government and the head of the trade uh, union movement something yeah. that we've not seen since the days of the accord um are we moving into a new world in which there's we have returning to sort of hawk keating politics of consensus again like is this something that is, is going to happen to us as well that we that's going to come out of this crisis or is this just um, kind of that moment in the First World War at Christmas time when the troops all de- declared uh, a ceasefire and got out and had Christmas dinner and kicked the football around and then go back to beating the shit out of each other when it's all done. I mean, what, what, do, what do we expect from this? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think I would say, I do think that there's probably, and this is what I said, like it felt like at some point something flicked the switch and I don't know, like I kind of like to work out what that was, you know, where there was early in the crisis, it still felt like it was a bit of a contest, you know, there was this kind of, you believe in this, like there's a trade-off between health and the, you know, I mean, and the economy. And now we're in the 
you know, actually the health and the economy are, I mean, are, 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 are one factor. Like we need to worry about both things at the same time. The way in which the states and the kind of the way in which the states and the federal government worked on like moving to stage three and the wage subsidy was sort of, you know, like like showed this thing can kind of work work in practice. Yeah, um, I think I think I think that there's probably some pressures like. Actually, we should be thankful for a federated system. Mm. You know what I mean, because a federated system allowed that contest to take place at the start. That meant that we were making certain actions to actually deliver what we needed. And if we didn't have that, maybe we would have lingered in that kind of in that sort of denial phase for too long at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and which is interesting uh, as well, because given that in that room there are powerful states and there are less powerful states, but the federation is supposed to be about you know creating that equality amongst the different populated states. And I yeah. feel like it's gone through a good stress test. Um, and sure, there's been, you know, challenges and sort of fuck-ups along the way. But by and large, I think it's actually worked quite well. If Compared to the United States right now, which I could do a whole other podcast on, because oh, their federated a- structure is, a, is just uh, is causing half the problems that they're having right now. Uh, like, I, I saw something yesterday where... Um, you know, I saw something yesterday where Trump was praising, you know, where the president was praising... Um, uh, Governor Cuomo's proposal to allow doctors that had been registered in different counties to work in other counties, which seemed to me like the most ridiculous thing I've heard about interstate boundaries since hearing about the fact that a you know fridge fridge plumber in Albury can't fix someone's fridge in Wodonga. Mm. You know, like 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 this was sort of like next level kind of craziness. Like in the middle of this, they were worried about that type of re- you know, cross registration. Um, there's a like uh, uh, there's a kind of hilarious Thomas Pynchon book, which I think is kind of funny in this, right? Where he sort of says that you've got the kind of like this kind of like this period that we've been in this contest in the politics is a period in which we've been has been like the chaos of the the peeves, the whims, the hallucin the hallucinators, the all right and like we've kind of moved we've kind of moved past that like there's this kind of new civic consciousness that actually we need to like work to solve solve this like like actually this is actually this is an actual problem Mm -hmm. right like oh no we've we've actually come across an actual problem yeah Yeah. um so uh i don't know i like look honestly long may it last but um uh long may it last but i think we'll get um uh I think I think I think if anything should give people pause as to the magnitude of this problem, it's the fact that um, it was this big that everybody had to put put aside their stuff, you know, put aside their kind of their um, their um, their silliness and actually get on with trying to sort of work together to solve some of these to solve some of the, these kind of challenges. I think the hard part is going to come. Um, I think the hard part is going to come. I think that. Um, but but I think the way in which that hard part works um, works well is if, in particular, the bigger states and the Commonwealth can work to get the kind of um, I like like the I think that we talked a lot about the things that will change. It's kind of like um, it'd be interesting to sort of talk about the things that were probably trends that were happening anyway, but are now going to become more important and more significant trends, right? Like so. Yeah, um, uh, like a really big thing was the fact that like basically all of Australia's economic growth was very fast, you know, with the exception of what we dug out of the earth and shipped overseas or what we dug out of the um, war gas we basically put on boats and sent off. With the exception of those things, like all of the economic growth was really now starting to basically be Sydney and Melbourne. It wasn't really even Victoria and New South Wales, you know. 
And I think this kind of like mega metropolis kind of um, question is going to become a much more important one, um, important one when we come out of this crisis. And what does that sort of mean and look like? Yeah. Um, uh, and um, and yeah. And and we're already on the sort of trend towards. You know, thinking about ways in which we decarbonize the economy, that's going to be here in a much more aggressive phase. You know, digitization, like we're talking over video conferencing, right? Like, which, you know, this would have been exciting. Um, this would have been exciting to do um, when we lived far apart, but we are literally four blocks from each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so those, you know, those types of things, I think, are, um, are going to be interesting. Um Martin Luther King uh, often, well, one of his most famous speeches, actually, the, the I Have a Dream speech, actually was actually, we call it the I Have a Dream speech, but it's um, the thematic of that speech was the, the, the urgency of now. That's right, yeah. Um, and I can't help but keep on thinking about that every day that I get up and go to work uh, and consider the urgency of now and the way that we all around the world have reacted and responded so quickly uh, to this um, it's been remarkable interestingly enough last thought before we wrap up earth hour happened uh, you may or may not have known that uh, last, I didn't, last I didn't. week but do you remember that that was a big thing and the effort that went into like a, a public awareness campaign to try and encourage global citizens to just turn off their lights for an hour once a year to protect to do something in helping <laughs> helping our earth uh and yet a uh, a global pandemic can literally shut down an entire economy and force us all to be working from home and make drastic decisions about how we uh and adjustments to how we live our lives um i think there's a lesson in there somehow and I, uh, and i think we'll it'll take us a while to extrapolate the, the 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 learnings from that and fundamentally change the way that we live our lives and hopefully improve the way we live our lives um, going forward, there's just one, just one thought I think about that about that change stuff is like, um, is also the way in which it's sort of reframing how we think about change. Yeah, and I think what's good about it is that it means that we, um, uh, we um, it it just means that we we are now willing to sort of accept things that we or or test things if we if we are uncomfortable with certain things, right? Like I, I was reading the other day. This is the sort of I wanted to kind of leave on this part. And so I was reading the other day about how, you know, China's closed its last, its last, you know, coronavirus-specific hospital. You know, Indian doctors are basically treating treating coronavirus by basically hacking together a set of different kind of arrangements, like like basically based on like ways of treating symptoms, and it sort of seems to seems to have have worked in a place that doesn't have a super sophisticated health system. But also uh, the one thing that I read the other day that, that gave me this kind of sense of hope, but also this kind of sense of how, like as you said, the urgency of now, um, is how Bill Gates is funding seven factories to build the vaccine, right? And they know that seven is not useful, right? They, they, they think that at some point they'll reduce it down to, they'll, they'll pick two, but they don't want to wait for when they've picked the, picked the right one to then start building the factory. So they basically said to the seven guys that are closest to it, We'll fund you to build your factories, and then, then effectively, once we get to the point where it's one, we'll then re-engineer the other six to make that work. And I think that's kind of a that's like the w weird urgency of the time that we're in. It's remarkable. Um, 
Amit, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the show today. Um, we could uh, go on and on and talk about uh, this for a while, but the good thing about coronavirus is that we're going to be stuck here for a while, so maybe we can come back and <laughs> catch up again and see what's happened uh, in the next... You know, if we leave it like three weeks, it'll feel like seven years, so, you know, we could... Uh, so much will move in that time. That's right. Can you imagine how dogs feel? <laughs> oh, anyway. I- I read today that uh, I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, someone, the, the, a tiger has been a tiger in, in at the Bronx Zoo at the Bronx Zoo in New York. A tiger has caught um, has caught um, uh, coronavirus from an asymptomatic zoo worker. Yeah, so Good. cat lovers, beware. All right, let's leave it on that note. <laughs> Thank Amit, you. Uh, okay. Be well. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, heaps. 